Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley & Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today's episode features a conversation with Jennifer Patton. Jen is Foley and Lardner's Chief Legal Talent Officer. And to be perfectly clear, Jen is not a practicing attorney. At least she is not anymore. Jen is a C-suite talent management professional who at Foley & Lardner is tasked with leading the firm's legal talent development department, which is comprised of professional development, recruiting, diversity and inclusion, attorney coaching, and alumni relations. This conversation is a ton of fun for me because I report to Jen. And it's through Jen's leadership that I'm able to do what I need to do to drive diversity and inclusion at Foley. But what's so interesting about this conversation is hearing Jen reflect on her path. She talks about growing up in Minnesota outside of the Twin Cities, attending Rice University as a collegiate athlete, spending some time at Goldman Sachs as an analyst, all before going to the University of Texas School of Law. She reflects on the years she spent as a litigation associate and her transition to the Supreme Court of Texas and how that actually paved the path for her to leave practice and focus on attorney talent management. In many ways, this conversation is a peek behind the curtain. And that I think often in large law firms, what we focus on, of course, are the lawyers, the practicing lawyers in their practice areas. But another big part of the business of large law firms is the management of those firms. And of course, to me, what I care a lot about is the people management. So towards the end of the show, you'll hear us talk as two talent management professionals about why it is that we're so passionate about helping people on their path. You'll also hear that Jen is largely responsible for this podcast even existing as she's the person who said, oh, maybe you should go ahead and start that podcast. That'd be great. Go do it. But it's also just wonderful, I think, to learn a little bit more about the other side of big law and to hear about how a firm's talent management philosophy can really drive your experience at a firm. With that being said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jen Patton. Jen, welcome to the show. We're going to just jump in, as I always do, and have you give your professional intro. Sure. Thank you so much, Alexis. My name is Jen Patton. I am the Chief Legal Talent Officer at Foley & Lardner. I work with our legal talent and development team on all things that touch upon the recruitment, development, advancement and promotion, and retention of our lawyers. I like to tell people that my job is to help our lawyers succeed in theirs. I love that. I should say that. I should say the same thing. It's a little bit different, but similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I will have already covered this in the intro, but just to be clear for all the listeners, you are not a practicing attorney at Foley, but you are an attorney. You went to law school. And for me, given that we work so closely together, the fun of this episode is to learn exactly how it is that you, you know, you go to law school, decide to no longer be a lawyer and jump to this side of the house. So before we get there, though, let's start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? So I am actually from Minnesota. So I grew up in the suburbs of the Twin Cities called Arden Hills, birth through 18 in Minnesota. 
So my whole family's from there. My aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, everybody's from I had no idea. Why do this is every episode? I'm like, I should have known that, but I didn't. All right, give me a snapshot, a snippet of life for Jen growing up. I don't know. It's middle school. What are you into? So I had a really idyllic childhood, honestly. My parents were both teachers when I was young. So they always had the summers to spend with me. They eventually went into business, but I spent a lot of time on my grandparents' farm growing up. Those are some of my best memories. What kind of farm? What did they farm? So I had my grandparents and then two sets of aunts and uncles were farmers. They had dairy cows and obviously had crops. So corn, soybeans, wheat, things like that. I thought going to the farm every summer was amazing to help out. My cousins, not so much, right? They had to take care of the animals and work in the fields before school, after school, every day in the summer. Whereas for me, it was such a treat. They thought of it as a really miserable job. But some of my best memories of my childhood are from spending time on the farm. I have some farming memories, which is weird because you've listened to enough of these that you know that they just jog uh, memories for me. But my my grandfather, my, my grandparents are from South Carolina. I would visit them in the summer and they were they were teachers. So I'd spend the summers there. And he had a family friend who actually owned a chicken farm. And I visited a number of times and I thought it was so fun to see all the baby chickens under this like giant roof. But in retrospect, those chickens, we know where the chickens were going, but that never affected my, my viewpoint as a child. I just thought it was great. No, never crossed your mind, right? But it, but it was so fun. Like I don't some uncles with pigs and every night after dinner, you'd dump all the scraps into a big bucket and you'd go dump it out and feed the pigs. I mean, so, so fun. And something I'm sad, like my kids will never have that experience, right? We live now right in the city in Houston and I no longer have any family members who are farmers. So I'm trying to figure out how to give them kind of that same experience, just because it was so awesome. You know, there's got to be somebody at Foley. I mean, with the Milwaukee off, there's got to be somebody with connections, at least to dairy, which aren't as dairy. I don't know. Dairy farms are sort of fun to visit, but it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll, we will find someone. This is a call out. Anyone listening, let Jen Patton know if you can, <laughs> particularly if you're local to the Houston area. That's right. If I can bring my kids to your farm, they can understand how to milk a cow, all that good stuff. Well, it's all automated like on a big farm. But yeah. anyway, all good life lessons. So I spent a lot of time at a farm. I also spent a lot of time playing sports growing up. So from a very young age, oh goodness. I mean, I remember playing t-ball and soccer, a lot of time playing soccer and then basketball was kind of my big sport that I spent a lot of my time playing. Golf also, I picked up. Wow, you covered most of them. So yes, I spent a ton of time playing sports. I was definitely the kid on the playground who would, you know, during recess, like go play basketball with all the boys. That's just where I was happy and in my yeah, kind of happy place. So, that was your zone. Yeah, in my zone. So a ton of time playing sports growing up for sure. So fast forward to high school, maybe as you're contemplating college, what was that process like for you? What did you think you were going to do or did you have any idea? So I knew I wanted to go somewhere where I could play basketball. I knew I wanted to go to a good school and knew I probably wanted to go far from home. Mm, okay. All I knew was Minnesota, but my parents raised me to be pretty independent and try new things and see new places. So that was really the criteria when I started looking. And I was really, really lucky in high school. I think maybe Vaughn Bryant and some others have mentioned AAU on these podcasts, right? So it's 
sports you play outside of school, right? So okay. you play with people from your city or your state. And so played AAU basketball for a number of years and played with a number of women who were very, very good basketball players. Four of them went on to be all Americans in college. Wow. And so they were being recruited by all sorts of schools in the summer. And so I was kind of the byproduct of that was there were schools that were able to see me play as well. And I ended up having the opportunity then to visit a number of schools to decide whether I wanted to go, you know, to school there and play basketball there. So really lucky opportunity for me to do that. So so where did you go? So I ended up going to Rice in Houston. I visited by myself. My parents did not come along. They really wanted me to make a decision that was right for me. And I'm so appreciative of that. I'm not sure I will be quite that way. I was going to say, this is bravo to your parents. I mean, it does speak to a a slightly different time, perhaps, but but I still think that's brilliant because there is that you're going to be independent anyway. You're leaving for college, presumably in the next year. Yeah. Yeah, Get get on the plane, check it out. Let us know what you think. And that's how they were. And I did. And it was a really amazing weekend at Rice. And it was uh, right before Halloween. So I have an interesting story about my, my, my trip to visit. The basketball coach had gotten the basketball team together at her house to do a pumpkin carving contest. So we were having great fun. At one point, her husband comes up to me and hands me a big hunting knife and says, use this, use this one to carve your pumpkin. While I am carving away, carving away, and the knife slips. And I cut open my hand. Oh, no. And the race basketball coach had to take me to the hospital to go get stitches. And on my first night there, I had to then call home to my parents and say, your daughter's fine, but we're at the hospital. She's getting stitches in her hand. It's all going to be okay. Your daughter's fine, but you put her on a plane and sent her to Texas by herself and she's cut herself mm-hmm. with a giant hunting knife, but she's fine. But she's fine. But you know what? It's funny when you look back, you're like, that kind of happened for a reason, mm-hmm. right? I was so impressed by how they took care of me. And I really felt like, oh, this is a family away from home. This is a place I feel safe and supported and I feel like is the right fit for me. And I came home from that weekend, still all bandaged up with stitches. And I told my parents, that's where, that's where I'm going to go to school. Yep. You were bonded. Do you really like the experience? Big with my strange, you know, pumpkin carving experience. So needless to say, I only use the safety knives now. Oh my goodness. You know, the ones you buy that for the kids? Yes. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. So you, you finish up high school, you do go to Rice, and of course you're playing basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. Von Bryant did give us a, so for those listening, he's episode one, check that out. But the life of a collegiate athlete, as he said, you know, we don't want you playing like a, you know, a sad song for us. But it is challenging playing collegiate sports mm-hmm. while also being in school. And so what was your focus academically? And just, yeah, what, what were your thoughts when you started at Rice? What was that like? So, I mean, I loved Rice from the minute I went there. And I look back on it with like such fond memories. But it does not mean it was always easy, as Vaughn said, right? Playing college sports really is a full-time job. So many mornings you are up and you have a workout of some kind, whether lifting weights or a track workout or you've got to go do some like individual basketball workout with your coach. That's before breakfast. You go to breakfast, you go to class, you then go to basketball practice for three hours. 
Then maybe you go lift weights or do some other type of workout again. You eat dinner and then you're at study hall or you're in the library and you just do it over and, and over. And based on when where the basketball season falls, you know, we always started practice over fall break. You play mm-hmm. through the holiday break. Our tournament at the end of the season was spring break. So you, you're definitely on a bit of a different schedule without the same breaks or the ability to go home and things like that. But what that opportunity afforded me is truly amazing. And we'll end up talking about it. It really set the course for everything I've done ever since and is the basis for so many of my close friendships that remain to this day. So it really was a tremendous experience. And I look forward to hearing more because right now I'm just not seeing the, I'm going to go to law school, I'm going to become a lawyer, (laughs) and then I'm going to leave practice and go focus on attorney talent management. I (laughs) I don't see it yet, but we'll get there. Yeah. So what was your major at, at at Rice? Yeah, so I majored in economics, psychology, and managerial studies. Managerial studies is like their generic name for a business degree. Okay. So that might be the first hint that I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Those were just classes I found interesting and thought would provide a pretty broad general base for whatever it is I wanted to do going forward. Okay. And so I'm guessing they did that. And then did you play the entire four years in college? So I did, but I was hurt my junior year and I missed most of that season, which again, another blessing in disguise, right? It's amazing how opportunity presents itself. When I was hurt that year, I actually did the radio broadcasts of our basketball games. Interesting. And you were just saying how this is your first podcast, but you have some experience is what I'm hearing. (laughs) I mean, a little different when you're doing the color commentary for Rice Women's Basketball Games. But yes, it was a really great experience. So they had an announcer who did the play-by-play, who now has since gone on to do that for the Houston Rockets and whatnot. And so when I got hurt, I didn't know I wanted to go to law school, but I really did have an interest in sports broadcasting. So this really seemed like a neat thing to do. And it was, it was really, really amazing. I got myself in trouble once on a broadcast when I questioned a call our coach had made, which she heard about after the fact and said, maybe you don't need to be questioning my decisions on a radio broadcast, which I understand, but it really was a fun way to stay involved with the team while I was hurt for a season. That's fantastic. So, but eventually you recuperate, you play then your senior year. Mm-hmm. And what were the thoughts post-graduation? What were you thinking you were going to do? What did you want to do? So I I don't really know. I didn't really know. I mean, like many people on this podcast, I swear there's so many of us at Foley who thought we were going to be doctors or something like that. And I just couldn't stand the sight of blood. A little similar, right? So when I was growing up, I thought maybe I'd be an orthopedic surgeon. My parents wanted me to be an orthodontist. I laugh. I'm like, it must be all the money you invested in my orthodontia. You thought you have a receiving end of that someday. Yeah, surely she's learning something through this experience. Right. So that's where they wanted me to go in college. You know, I didn't like the sight of blood. Science classes weren't totally my jam, which is why I, you know, majored in, in different things. So I knew that wasn't an option. I mentioned wanting to do the sports broadcasting thing, but didn't see a real path there. So then I thought, well, you know, I'll apply to law school. I don't have any lawyers in my family. I didn't have any experience with lawyers growing up other than what you see on TV. I mean, I kind of thought like law and order was, that's what being a lawyer meant. I remember doing a mock trial in junior high where, you know, I got to wear like one of my mom's blazers and I got to, you know, cross-examine a witness. And I, I remember feeling the rush of that and thinking that was fun, but I didn't know what 
being a lawyer meant. Certainly not like a corporate lawyer, a big law lawyer, but I thought, well, I'll just do that. Yeah, let's do it. I don't really know what else. So I applied to law school. And then during my senior year, while I was waiting to hear back, I got a phone call from a Rice alum who had played basketball and which is very active still in the Rice community. And he called and said, listen, I've seen you speak at various functions. At the time, I spoke often to the Rice board or different alumni groups, right, to garner support for the athletic department and the university generally. And he said, I've seen you speak. Would you ever be interested in investment banking? I'm a Goldman Sachs. This is what we do. I think this could be a good fit for you. I didn't know what in the world investment banking was. And I said, sure, I'd love to talk with you. Sure. But was part of you like, what's a Goldman Sachs? I don't know yeah, what any of this is. I didn't know, right? I grew up from a family of farmers. And like I said, my parents were teachers. I didn't know what any of this meant. So he and others at Goldman Sachs met with me and tried to explain a little bit of what it was, prepared me for what an interview would be. And then I flew out to New York to interview. I'd never been to New York City before. And, you know, what's neat about the investment banks is they have this two-year analyst program where they hire students out of college. They train you everything you need to know, right? And you go work really hard for two years. Some people stay. Some people move into different positions at the bank. Some go to business school, right? People go all different paths. So I thought, well, why not? Law school can always wait. Let's go do this for two years. So I went and worked for Goldman Sachs. I did just under a year in New York and then a year in Houston before I ultimately said, okay, I think I do now really want to go to law school. So I'm actually really glad I took that two-year break. Mm-hmm. And then it made me think, okay, do I really want to go to law school? Or is that something I just did because I didn't really know what else I wanted to do? And it shaped you know, where I chose to apply, it shaped the type of law I chose to practice after the fact. So all in all, a good little detour on my my path. Well, it's so interesting. A couple things, the random call out of the blue. Mm -hmm. um, And also, I remember graduating from college and a friend of a friend was going to Goldman Sachs, I think, to do the analyst thing. And I'd never heard of it before. And the friend who's introducing his friend, whom he's very proud of, is like, oh, have you met so-and-so? He's going to Goldman Sachs. And I was like, that's cool. Like he could have said he was going anywhere. It meant Mm -hmm. nothing to me. And so I just imagine you perhaps having that same sort of mindset of not knowing that not only is it investment banking, but it's kind of like the place, like one of the places to go for investment banking. Fortunately, my parents knew and were like, you you should. Oh, honey. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'm like, great. Okay. I don't know. And it just so happened. One of my good friends from college was moving to New York also. So I had a buddy. So like we went and did it together and it was that's so awesome. And I have to be careful not to spend way too much time on what was ultimately a two-year experience for you. But I am curious if you could just say a little bit more about what it was you worked on when you were there. And then we could talk about you going to law school. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I worked in their natural resources group. So I did all kind of oil and gas you know, transactions that will not surprise you given the fact I now live in Houston. So that was the group I was in. So worked on everything from kind of M&A deals to security offerings. But again, having come into it, knowing nothing. So you spend your first six to eight weeks full on training, like full time, different than like law firm orientation, which is, you know, three to five days. And when they turn you loose, this was all the analysts, you know, tucked away from everyone else for an almost two month period. I remember my first week on the job, I got put on some deal and I pulled an all-nighter, I think that Thursday night. Wow. And I thought, well, wow, this is really setting the tone for for what's to come. 
but it was neat. I mean, when you are 23 years old and you get to go sit in a boardroom with like the CEO of a company that the exposure you have and the things you learn is second to none. Really is amazing. That's so. amazing. But as you said, it did confirm your urge then. You're like, yeah, I think I do want to go to law school. So mm-hmm. I assume while you're still working as an analyst, you then had to start that process up again. Yes. Yep. So applied to law school again, though looked at very different law schools this time because I realized, you know what, I really like Texas and want to be in Texas. So applied to UT, for example, and ended up there and decided to really focus on litigation more than corporate law. So while I liked Coleman and my experience there, I looked at the corporate lawyers and I'm like, oh yeah, that just doesn't match what I see a lawyer doing, right? So we'd all sit around in a room and the investment bankers would tell the lawyers like, no, move that comma. Nope, change that word. Now do this. And the lawyers would sit there with their pens. I'm sure it's very, very different now. But I thought, well, that that doesn't look like much fun. <laughs> so I definitely want to go to law school. Definitely but not to do that. And again, because I didn't know, you know, that was my first exposure to that type of practice. And so I still didn't really get it just on that, you know, minor exposure to it. So I said, litigation, that's what I'm going to do. And so that's kind of the path I took while in law school and then after law school. And you were already back, as you said, in Texas, because your second year at mm-hmm. Goldman was in Texas. Yep. So you go to the University of Texas for law school. Yeah. Any, I don't know, brief thoughts on that adjustment after just spending two years as an analyst? So, you know what? I'm so glad I did it because I approached law school really differently than I'd approached college, right? I approached law school like a job. I went to my classes, I studied all afternoon, and then I had my evenings free. Mm -hmm. And that was the right approach for me, if that makes sense. And I was very appreciative. I was like, wow, law school, I have all sorts of free time compared to what I had before. So my law school experience is probably different than maybe what some people are told they should do with law school. So I didn't try to write on to law review. I played a lot of intramural sports. I played softball and I played basketball and I played flag football and I enjoyed kind of the social aspects of law school quite a bit, which was I love that. Fun. Like I made great friends, but I was able to treat law school a little differently, I think, because of the fact I worked for two years. Well, the mindset part of law school is so interesting because I think it's going to meet your expectations of whatever mindset you walk in there with. Right. So if you walk in with like, this is all encompassing, I have to study 24 hours a day, like you will find, mm-hmm. you will find that you will find people who subscribe to that, you know, and hopefully it goes well. Mm-hmm. But I also, I was more of the treated it like a job, but mostly because I fell in with people who treated it like that, which is, you know, Larry Perlman at, at Foley. Yeah, right. And then also this reminds me of what Sarah Madavo said, who's a partner at Foley interviewed at this point, it'll probably be like three episodes ago, but just that you actually do have more time than you think. And once again, our advice, you have to see it this way, but I think sometimes law students will have decided law school is all encompassing, which will cause them to miss out on some really neat opportunities, whether it be, you know, just making certain friends or taking advantage of all the extra stuff your school has to offer that you just won't be able to do again. So Mm -hmm. you have some free time, unless you're in an extenuated circumstance of I'm also working or I'm also taking care of family or children. The average law student does have some time. That's right. That's right. And I will say law school, though, was really eye opening for me because you do need to take it 
you know, you do need to have the mindset and the approach that works best for you, but it is very easy to get sucked into seeing what other people are doing and get very nervous and get some anxiety about it and then think that you've got to do that same approach, right? So there is a little bit of this, oh, these people are in the library more than I am. Should I be here? Oh, they're talking about how important a journal is. Should I do that? Or, oh, and this, we can talk about this more as we go about like the job search and it spills into that. And people start interviewing with certain firms or certain types of work because that's what people are talking about at law school. And it's hard to balance that and find your way. That was one thing I definitely struggled with. Again, being the first in my family to go to law school, I didn't know who these firms were or what they did or the difference between this firm and that firm. And so it's easy to get sucked into, well, this person said this and this person says you should go work here. And I'm like, "I, I don't know. I just, it's, you've got to keep your path. Yes. And the best you can, I should say. Well, it's so hard too, because when you don't, like, I didn't know any of the firm names. They all sound like fraternities and sororities I'd never heard of before. (laughs) And so to the extent you can gather information Mm -hmm. from others, that is, but there's a difference between trying to learn versus being really heavily influenced and maybe Mm -hmm. not so much doing what you know is right for you, whether that be picking a job Mm -hmm. or even in how you study. So I remember one of the most just earth shattering things someone said to me was, you don't have to outline. And I think it was after my first year. And I remember being like, what do you mean I don't have to outline? Everyone here outlines. Outlining is what you do. But just this Mm -hmm. idea that you could study in a way that actually works the best for you. It just hadn't occurred to me. I'm in law school. I'm supposed to outline. But of course, I should learn how I learn. That makes sense. Right. Or study groups is another example. Like from day one, people were forming these study groups. And it was like, oh, no, we have our group. Thanks. But should I? I kept thinking, well, do I need to be in a study group? And it it was a source of much anxiety for me. And then I found what worked best for me is to have one study partner. I found my person and we had a great working relationship and were able to work together in a way that made sense for both of us. But it is hard when you see that happening around you and you think, do I need to adjust? Yes. Well, and it makes me laugh a little bit because my first thought was, so much time has been wasted in law school study groups. And I don't know if someone's going to now email me and be like, no, this was the best thing ever I could have gotten through without my five-person study group. But I do have a suspicion that a lot of people, you start out study grouping because you think you're supposed to, you realize you just wasted two hours mm-hmm. and then the study groups break up and you figure out what actually works for you. <laughs> right. But but in law school, you knew that likely corporate wasn't the way you wanted to go Did you do the on-campus interviewing thing or how did you end up finding your job after law school? I did. I did do OCI, again, not not really knowing. I talked to a lot of firms. And what's amazing is in some ways, a lot of firms sound the same. They do great work. It's a collegial culture. But as you talk to people, you really do start to get the feel that there are differences. And so I did really spend a lot of time talking with firms, going to all of their receptions and happy hours and everything under the sun, because I realized that was the only way mm-hmm. I was going to be able to figure out anything about these firms. And I've heard you say it on the podcast too, like you got to go beyond the website. Yes. Right? The website is not going to reveal all, all secrets. Correct. <laughs> to you. You it's not really dig down and find out like what the firm is about, who the people are, what they really stand for. And I spent a ton of time doing that through OCI, trying to come up with the right kind of path for me. 
I laugh now because we're the people who are working to always update a firm website. So we firsthand <laughs> understand what it takes to keep an, a law firm website up to date. Mm-hmm. And then I've also encountered the law students who are just furiously scrolling websites. And partly I want to say, there's a good chance that's from six years ago and they just forgot to update that. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. But you you do find your firm. And so tell me about that. You graduate from law school. You start. What, what did you do? What was that like for you? So again, a really interesting experience. I did not know what to expect. And when I started practicing then, it's very different than people who start practicing now. So if we have our new lawyers come and join Foley, we are in touch with them weeks in advance. They know who their mentor is going to be and they've heard from that person. Their whole first week plus is planned out to the minute of programs, right? When I started, it was like, yep, show up on this date and you kind of show up and they're like, there's your office, here's a computer. The person next door is your mentor. Good luck. Good luck. So it's a little, it's a little scary. But I think what really helped me is I found my people really early, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I found people who supported me, mentored me, helped me. And I will say at every step in my career, that's what's gotten me through, right? Good days and bad days are having those people around you. That's fantastic. Well, and with you, Jenna, I'm excited because we're now getting to the inflection points in your career that... I think we're eventually going to lead to why it is that we work together now. Right. And so I know you practiced for a number of years at a firm, but then you mm-hmm. went to the Supreme Court of Texas. I did. So what was that like? And why did, yeah, tell me about that. Okay. So an amazing experience. So believe it or not, when I was in law school, I applied to do a clerkship. It's actually, I got a clerkship at a state appellate court. And then my third year in law school, the judge passed away. And so I ended up then starting at my firm a year earlier than I had anticipated, not doing a clerkship show. I'd always been interested in working for a court and having that experience because I'd heard such positive things about it from other people. I had a number of friends who moved from big firm life to the Texas Supreme Court. And when an opportunity became available, they said, listen, this would be, this is what you are looking to do at some point. Even if you want to go back to big law, come work at the Supreme Court for a year or two. It's an amazing experience. And I went and interviewed with the chief justice and I was immediately Mm. drawn to the opportunity. And the Supreme Court of Texas is a unique place because the staff attorneys and the law clerks are able to participate in court conferences. So we get to sit in the room as the judges are discussing all of the cases um, and you get to hear their thoughts on things. So you learn a lot that way. And again, it was really because of the chief justice there that it was such a great experience for me. And he turned out to be an amazing, amazing mentor to me personally and professionally. And I was curious because when I when I pulled up your bio, it, and you mentioned staff attorneys, yep. is that the same as being a clerk or because just the title's a little bit different. So what, yeah. Did, yeah, what is that role? So clerks are, you know, the one year usually out of law school, but sometimes can come back after working a couple of years. So that's just a one year appointment. Staff attorneys are full-time employees at the court. Mm -hmm. So each member has a full-time staff attorney. I was a, I'll call it a court-wide staff attorney in that I didn't work for a specific justice. I reported to the chief, but I handled all the court's emergency proceedings. Oh, okay. So that's what I did my first couple of years. And then I moved into the general counsel role at the Supreme Court. And so what was that distinction? What was the change once you moved into the general counsel role? 
So the general counsel role was not actually handling any of the court's docket. It is, I would say, a mix of part legal work, part administrative work. So you are doing things that a typical general counsel would do. You are dealing with employment issues. You are dealing with, let's say, working with the attorney general's office when the court is sued. You're dealing with court contracts. But then on the flip side, you're actually working on things like the judiciary's budget and various court boards and task forces, working with the state bar, working on various matters of importance to the judiciary. So things like the school to prison pipeline and things like that. And so it's, it's a bit different in that respect, that it has a big administrative aspect. And that is really what set me on this kind of different course, because I realized I really like this administrative side more than I like the pure legal side. I could see it. That's it. That's a major inflection point. I was like, oh, there it is. There's the golden thread <laughs> that's connecting everything. And so just from LinkedIn, it looks like you were at the Supreme Court of Texas for about four years. And then what happens? Where did you go next? So then I went to a, a large law firm to uh, launch an alumni relations program. So at the time I was living in Austin, working for the Supreme Court. My now husband was in Houston. So we were doing a long distance thing. The chief justice who I worked for was retiring from the court and it just seemed like a good time to make a move in my life. And so I had decided after being in this general counsel role that I wasn't interested in going back to practicing, but I wanted to stay in the legal you know, industry. And so I started looking at these positions in legal talent. And I was really attracted to this position to launch an alumni relations program because I had pretty strong feelings about my own experience as a lawyer. And I thought I would love to be in a position where I could impact that experience for other people. And alumni relations to me was a neat opportunity to come in and build something. I would say alumni relations in the law firm world now is is pretty widespread. But at the time, eight years ago, yep. there weren't many firms doing it. So it was a neat opportunity just to, to, to build kind of a new innovative program. Yeah, I'd say eight years ago, it definitely wasn't common. And even now, as you mentioned, it's more widespread, but I don't think it's as widespread as what you'll see in, say, the accounting or the consulting world. Correct. So as an industry, we still do have a ways to go. But yeah, you were definitely working on that before it was probably top of mind in most of the big law yes. industry. Yeah. Yeah. But I do know you then, you you did that for a number of years, but then you moved even within the the talent side of the house. So tell me more about that. Yeah. So my job then kind of morphed from alumni relations to lateral recruiting to professional development. And I started to touch all these various aspects that fall under the legal talent umbrella. And then I was just hooked, yep. right? I When I talk about being able to make an impact on someone's career, that is that speaks to me, right? Like that, I find purpose in that. And that's what's really drawn me to now build my career in that area. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also essentially almost like a residency of sorts for, I think, what you do now mm -hmm. as chief legal talent officer at Foley. And so I've been at Foley now, is it? I don't think I'm quite at a year and a half, but I know you have a couple of months ahead of me. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that I want to say it was probably a bit over two years ago, Foley decides we want to bring in a chief legal talent officer. They likely do a search. You know, at some point they run across you that, you know, they get you to join. Mm -hmm. And what I would love to talk a bit about, maybe for the rest of our time together, I'm not sure, but 
is legal talent development about the significance of having a chief legal talent officer? Maybe a bit about how we as Foley are conceiving of that side of the house. Mm -hmm. So but now we have you here. And if you wouldn't mind even saying, you said what your role is at Foley, but if you could restate it and sort of what that means and what, what you lead here at Foley and Lardner. Sure. So as I mentioned in the beginning, the legal talent and development team really touches on anything that relates to the recruitment, development, advancement, and promotion and retention of our lawyers. So functionally speaking, that is all of our legal recruiting efforts from entry level through lateral. It's our professional development initiatives. So onboarding and orientation, training, feedback and performance management, mentoring, things like that. It's all of our diversity and inclusion initiatives at the firm. It's our attorney coaching and alumni relations as well. So here's something that I think I've said the equivalent of this in the podcast before, but I find this so interesting. So usually when you're an associate, you do not spend a lot of time thinking, hmm, I wonder how my firm runs the back of house managerial stuff. I wonder how professional development works. I wonder how attorney talent management and performance works, which I actually find funny that we don't think more about that because it is, particularly when you're in a large firm, really important to your experience as an associate, your ability to grow, to matriculate there. And this I have said on the show before, but as law students or maybe even someone who's thinking a laddering are thinking like, which firm is going to value me? Everything that you just said, Jen, in many ways, that's also what's going to indicate it. I say, because there's there's a few other things. It's not only that, but this is, I think the stuff, this is like the peek behind the curtain. Like we don't actually talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There aren't that many, I think, resources where someone can hear how a firm is structuring the attorney talent management experience. Right. So I just had to pause on that because for a lot of times as an associate, if things are going really well, you're never even going to think about it. Correct. No, I mean, I, I would have, like when I started my career and I'm interested if you'd say the same thing, I didn't even think in a million years to ask about that. What kind of training will I get? How is work allocated at the firm? What type of feedback culture do you have? Who will I be working with most frequently? I never in a million yep. years. How are, how are reviews structured? How often do you give them? How is feedback gathered? All of that stuff. And so now, as you know, I do with all of our new laterals, I'll get about 30 minutes with them. I tell them about diversity at the firm. I also use it as an opportunity to tell them a little bit about how we are structured on this side of the house. And I will tell them, particularly when it's an associate, I expect that after this, you will not think about this again because I never thought about it as an associate. But what I'll say is, hopefully this stuff feels very seamless to you. You feel very supported for the attorneys who've been at Foley for a long time. I think they've actually noticed a market change in that while Foley's, you know, is a great place to work, has been a great place to work. We've been working really hard to elevate all of those things so that everybody feels like stuff runs even more seamlessly, especially for our partners who otherwise are running all of that to make sure that they feel really supported. But it's such an important thing in terms of who's helping you manage your career. It's actually something, and you know, for maybe it's a little self-serving for both of us because this is what we do and what we're passionate about. But I would actually love to see attorneys and law students get a bit more savvy and ask these questions because there's usually someone like us who's happy to answer them, but often like, you know, kind of poking fun at the law student, but it's the like scrolling the website, hoping to read the tea leaves versus when you're in these interviews, when you're at OCI, these are questions you can actually ask. Right. And, and you're right. We love talking about this stuff, right? If you, if you don't feel comfortable talking to one of our lawyers, 
call someone in the legal talent area, right? We are always happy to discuss. And, and we do try to educate our existing lawyers, or the lawyers we're recruiting about who we are and what we do. Because as you said, many times it's seamless. They don't need us. But when they do, we want them to know we are here to help. Hmm. We don't want it to get to the point that that person has decided to leave the firm. Then it's too late. Yes. We want to get involved when they say, you know what? My work slowed down. I just need some help on where I should be finding new work. Or, boy, I'm thinking of switching practice areas. I'm not sure this is the right fit. Or my family situation is bringing me to a different office. You know what? Come talk to us. This is what we are here for. Or, oh, boy, I need some extra training on X because I've been asked to do this type of work that I've never done before. Like, if you don't feel comfortable talking to a mentor or people in your practice group or in your office, like, we are the safe space. Yep. And that's what I, I hope our existing lawyers and the lawyers we're recruiting to the firm know is there is always somebody to help you. And the resources. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then this is, I don't know, I hope this isn't going too far like left field. But what I also find interesting within the broader legal industry, because that's another thing, we both pay a lot of attention to the industry, what large law firms are doing. But I often will feel like in terms of attorney talent management, what we run into is the noble profession of the law and how it used to be that you just joined a firm and you were an apprentice. You know, this is like a hundred plus years ago. You know, you were an apprentice for five to seven years. But now just, I think everyone knows this, but just to make it really clear, these are very large, sophisticated law firms with thousands of employees. You know, at Foley, we have 2000 employees. And so you really do need this side of the house to help bridge the gap because we don't work in a, well, some people do for the small firms, but generally the large firms, you, you don't get assigned to one person who's supposed to train you for the next five years. And so these departments are what I think are bridging the gap and really helping that people management side mm-hmm. of the house, which I actually think is sort of a very 2020 year 2021 thing to talk about, because I think talent management and people management right. is so important in so many ways, which I think is what lights both of us up. Yes. <laughs> and we find very exciting, but what, it's just something that as lawyers, we don't talk a lot about. Right. So for whatever that's worth, I don't know, but I find that really exciting. And also just to speak a little bit to with you coming in, you're the first chief legal talent officer that Foley's had. Mm-hmm. And what I really appreciate about Foley is the culture of the firm has been fantastic, but realizing, you know, a couple years ago that they wanted to continue to invest in the people side of the house, I just think speaks a lot to the firm because your role is not yet that common. I wouldn't quite say that every firm has a chief legal talent officer. No, totally agree. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention our firm's core values here, honestly. So you've heard this on many other podcasts, especially Jay Rothman's, right? That fully is driven by these core values. And we really, really are. And the launch of this legal talent and development function is directly tied to that, right? When we're talking about core values like our people, professional satisfaction, clients first, diversity and inclusion, you name it, what we are trying to do really ties into those core values. And one of the things I I really appreciate also, you know, in terms of why this is important to what the firm is doing is what Jay Rothman says around stewardship, right? And that everyone at Foley, you know, the goal is to leave the firm better than you found it. Whether you're here for a week or you're here for 50 years, that's the goal. And Jay really sees what we are doing in legal talent and development as part of that stewardship. 
that what we are trying to build here is really trying to take fully, right? The next step, differentiate us in some way to really build something bigger and better than ourselves here Mm -hmm. to drive forward. And I, I find that to be so meaningful and so motivating for me. Right. And one of the reasons I joined and, and we do this every day is I, I really appreciate that vision of why we're yes. here and what we're doing. Well, and that that bedrock, because I think for both of us, the things we're building, you, that's a solid foundation to build upon. And then I know for me with diversity and inclusion work, the importance of being so collaborative with the rest of the firm and having a firm that was ready for that. And this is something I get asked all the time. How can I tell if a firm really cares about DNI? And you know, I, I feel for someone on the outside, it's always going to be very hard. But this sort of structural stuff can actually be an indicator that the the level of collaboration when DNI is a silo and somehow everything labeled diversity is supposed to go in this separate column, somehow divorced from the firm. Right. You know, and, and I like make a face as I say it because it simply it simply can't work when these are core people management, talent management, which is why it's so important that we work as closely as we do. Right. And yeah, for the law student, I don't know how you're going to glean all this that quickly, but that's really the only way that I can see any of this working. And then Jen, as we start to wrap up, there's something I also have to mention is yeah. you're the reason why we even have this podcast, because as you may recall, I made all those outreach calls when COVID first hit, which was mm-hmm. now almost exactly a year ago. And I said, Jen, I'm hearing all these amazing stories for our from our attorneys as I just, you know, out I call them to introduce myself, to ask them how they're doing. And I think I half jokingly was like, wouldn't it be interesting if we just started like a podcast so I could share all these cool stories? And I remember you were like, Oh yeah, you should do that. That'd be great. <laughs> I am all for trying new things. And you know why I think this podcast is so neat? Like you said, the idea you had came out of these personal connections you were making. And you talk about, you know, how how do you know what a firm is like, right? You don't gleam it from the website. Well, this podcast is a terrific example, right? Of the individual and personal connections that people have here at Foley, which has led to this, you know, great, great thing that we've, you know, done and that you have led an amazing effort to allow other people to get to know. You can hear it firsthand. I think, Jen, you're going to be episode 40. Um, but I do remember, and people ask me about launching it, and I'm like, well, I, I pitched it to my boss. I just mentioned it kind of in mm-hmm. passing. And she was like, you should do that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go figure that out. I don't know how, never done it before, but let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. And it's amazing we say now we're at number 40, because I remember, I think the original pitch was 12 episodes. Yeah. Just to see what, and then I, I've just, no one's told me to stop. So I've just kept going. (laughs) We're going to keep going. This is, this is really fun and a great, a great way for our people to connect with each other and for people outside of Foley to, to learn a little bit more about who we are. Exactly. Well, and a couple things as we we wrap up and I ask you my final questions, but Mm -hmm. I also think, as we were saying, a lot of times attorneys don't necessarily give much thought to the talent management side of the house or even kind of like the the business side of the house. How's the firm run? But I actually think getting to know, you know, if it's a chief legal talent officer, a chief people officer type, chief diversity, whomever it is at, you know, whether it be at Foley or another firm, this is me just bragging about our jobs, but we are really good people to get to know because because we we tend to have a hand. I mean, you I think even more so in so many functions of the firm and we are not billable. We are all we're very busy, but we're not billable. So when the attorneys want some time with us, 
not to say that the partners won't do the same because I think they will, but we're another perspective and another voice that can give a really, I think, bird's eye view of so many functions that perhaps the attorneys don't appreciate there's business services professionals that are intimately involved with. So that's kind of my pitch, particularly for the like, get to know Jen. I think people are doing that anyway, but just so when you're thinking of your resources, but this also sets the stage for the final couple of things I wanted to ask, which is, you know, somewhat quickly Is there anything that you want to mention that you haven't, but then also what's your advice? Because I think your bird's eye view just means you have, you're a great person to seek wisdom from. So I look forward to hearing your advice to lawyers or law students. (laughs) So much pressure, so much pressure. So Um, much pressure. Be wise. Wisdom. Wisdom. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, what I will say is this, follow your path. We talked about this earlier, right? You can listen to other perspectives, but follow your path, but don't be so set on your path that you don't look for other opportunities. I I look back and I think every job I've ever held, a couple of years prior, I didn't know any of those jobs existed, if that makes sense. In college, I didn't know what an investment banker was. I didn't know, you know, I knew there were lawyers. I didn't know what that meant. I certainly didn't know about like a general counsel at a Texas Supreme Court, or I didn't know about people in our types of positions. So just Don't be so set on a path that you also don't keep the door open for opportunity. And then I would say too, like know what you value. Really think about what matters to you and that will help drive you to the right firm, the right job, whatever it might be. Don't worry so much about what other people's values are. Focus on what's meaningful to you. And I would say I've gotten better at that as I have gotten older and progressed in my career, which is now where I feel like I've ended up right where I'm supposed to be. Oh, thank you so much, Jen, for being on the podcast. And I often ask, and I will with you as well, if people have comments, questions they want to reach out to you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and email you? Sure. I would love it if people reach out. I'm always happy to answer questions. Thank you so much, Jen. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jen. I'm here with a fantastic update, which is that as of May 2022, Jen was promoted from Chief Legal Talent Officer to Chief Talent Officer. Thus, in addition to legal recruiting, diversity, equity, and inclusion, professional development, and attorney coaching reporting up through Jen, Jen's role also now encompasses human resources, compensation, benefits, and payroll. Congratulations, Jen. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.